Megal Stone was not sectarian, he was not bigoted, but yet in loyalist circles he's down. There's songs wrote about him, about that, what a loyalist hero. He'd no interest in any of that. If the provost had accepted him, he would have been attacking the loyalists, you know. It gave him an excuse to unleash what was in his mind and what he really wanted to do to take life. I'm Nicola Tallent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He is one of the most notorious killers of the North's troubles and when he staged a single-handed attack on a provisional IRA funeral at Milltown Cemetery in 1988, his face became infamous across the world. Today, Michael Stone is wheelchair-bound and poses for selfies with young loyalists who see him as a cult hero for one side of a bitter divide. But was Stone a true loyalist paramilitary? Or was he simply a violent psychopath with a bloodlust and a desire to cement his name in history, just like mass murderers in the US who commit shooting atrocities? Today, I'm talking with journalist Hugh Jordan, who met Stone at the recent Orange Order centenary event at Stormont. And with his friend Jim Murta, who grew up with the convicted killer. And who remembers a very strange young man who was cruel to animals and who was an outsider in his home and his community. This is Crime World. A podcast from sundayworld.com Hugh, you met Michael Stone recently and um, by the looks of it, he wasn't that happy to see you. Well, there's a bit of a a joke in that. In reality, he was because his personality... Nothing Michael Stone likes better, Nicola, than talking about himself. And I facilitated that for him. But it was it was an unusual event because it was the 100th anniversary of the formation to celebrate the formation of Northern Ireland. But it was a, it was a year out because it couldn't yeah. go ahead last year because of COVID. So we were, I was covering it for the Sunday World. It was a magnificent event, 131 loyalist bands. There were um, easily 30,000 people on the hills of Stormont. It was like a football stadium. Uh, And then over 100,000 people on the route into the city of Belfast. And all this had happened 100 years ago. So it was a, excuse me, it was an unusual uh, event. But when I was told by a, a man that Mr. Stone was present and I walked down the hill to see if I could see him and we, I saw him and I walked over to him and said, hello, Michael. And he said, ah, Mr. Jordan, the man I love to hate. But, <laughs> but we shook hands and uh, I told him that I was friendly with uh, a friend of his and he said, uh, who's, who's that? And I said, Jim Murta. Uh, and, and, and the two men had grown up together since childhood, since Stone arrived back from England 
arrived on the Braniel estate where Jim Murta lived with his family, were both the same age and they grew up together from primary school. So I had a long chat with Michael Stone about that and he was very happy to talk about his friend Jim Murta. It always helps to have a connection somewhere, doesn't it? And we're going to talk to Jim shortly um, about his childhood and, and his his uh you know his knowledge of stone but before we do um because i saw those pictures and he's in a wheelchair um michael stone he certainly doesn't look like the the force he once was and um just tell me a little bit about what he's been doing of late and what his health is looking like well funny you you touch on that subject his health and he spoke to me at length about that um you've got to remember Michael Stone came within an inch of losing his life that day in Milltown. Uh, as he's making his escape uh, down from the cemetery down onto the motorway, eventually he's caught by his pursuers and uh, he was beaten within an inch of his life, savagely, brutally, and it was only the arrival at the last minute of the RUC, which saved his life. And I I would say Stone fully expected to die that day in that moment, but he never. But the... And Hugh, of course, for those people who don't remember what Milltown was, the significance of that event and the horror of it, um, really it played out in front of our eyes. And in those days, things didn't so much because there weren't quite as many smartphones, et cetera, as there is today. But, of course, there was there was film crews there. Now, what did Michael Stone do that day and what was going on? Well, you're right to, to bring that up, Nicola. Now, why Stone is famous is the catalyst for uh, an, an amazing drama that happened in Belfast in 1988. And what it kicked off, it started in Gibraltar, of all places, well, the IRA were planning to blow up a British Army band parade and the SAS executed three members, two men and one woman, all members of the IRA. And when their funerals were t- due to take place a few days later back in Belfast, Stone attacked their funeral uh, on live television. And this is, this is why he became famous. He, he, he subjected the, the funeral, which was a, in a process of closing, uh, to a bomb, a uh, grenade and, um, and gun attack. And he killed three people and injured another 60. And he was attempting, he claimed he was attempting to kill Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness, but he ended up killing uh, three other people but this played out in front of the world's media who were there to film it. And it was a remarkable uh, state. People cowering, uh, 60 people were injured by shrapnel. And, um, but Stone started to make his escape after throwing a series of grenades and, um, and firing shots, as I say, killed three people. He makes his escape on the far side of the cemetery down onto the M1 motorway where he had planned to be picked up by accomplices. And as he's making his way down there and returning fire, throwing the odd grenade, he was being pursued by a small band 
of younger, mostly younger men who had no guns, but they were pursuing, and some of them were being shot by stone in the process, and uh, they made their way and eventually caught up with him when he was out of ammunition. And they were, in the, they were trying to remove him from the scene. He was very badly beaten when, when the police finally arrived and, and took Stone from him. Stone was almost unconscious, and they removed him to hospital. And he was in a shocking state of, of, of injury. Mm. These injuries pertain to this day, and he, he suffers from uh, much more, more, he's immobile, practically immobile, and he gets around in a wheelchair. For a few years, uh, he, he was mobile, but then uh, uh, clearly all these old injuries have, uh, have come back into play. But of course, in the interim period after, he was, re- he was released under the Good Friday Agreement, but he, 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 he went back to Stormont as the stocks were going on to, to carry out another uh, attack again on Michael, on, on Martin McGuinness and Jerry Adams. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was seen largely as a stunt because he had a fake gun, but he did have a, he did have a live bomb on him. And um, he got, he spent another seventeen years in jail, but he, physically he's much diminished from his day that day in Milton. One of the most standout characters of the Troubles, really, Michael Stone, um, and that image of him being taken down at the the funeral is quite iconic. He was with his girlfriend or his wife, Karen. I think you, yes, you had that's her, correct. Yeah, she was. Um, she has she always been with them, or is she a new addition? Stone's been married uh, three times, I believe, and he, he has nine children. Um, so uh, I, I I just don't know when he married Karen. Karen would be known in the sort of uh, loyalist community as a a female DJ. She she puts on plays records and pubs and things. Hugh was telling me, Jim, and to introduce Jim Murta, who's a businessman uh, from from Belfast and who grew up with Stone and other very interesting characters. But Hugh has been telling me that you actually met uh, Stone in the days before he he um, attacked the, the crowd of mourners in Milltown. Um, what happened? And you knew him a long time at that point, but you had a brief conversation with him, I think. Yeah, I knew him from from childhood, Nicola, as uh, Hugh pointed out. We've known each other from about the age of six or seven. And I hadn't seen him, uh, I'd seen him over the years, but I hadn't seen him in a good 15, 20 years. And I bumped into him at the city home, Belfast. And it was him recognised me. He'd put on a lot of weight. He was always one for looking after himself, keeping fit, you know. And uh, there was this wee fat man with a wee cap, which was not his style. And, uh, you know... I didn't recognise him, but he recognised me. We've all changed, but he had changed an awful lot. And he told me he was suffering from depression. Mm. And he had his marriage, you know, it broke up. I think that was the second marriage it broke up. And I, I, I could understand why it broke up. He was very violent and vicious till the, the women that he, he did marry. I bumped into him years previous, about 20 years, and he brought me home to his house. And that was in Tully Carnot in Belfast, the loyalist there in Belfast. And I remember going to the door and it took his wife about 10 minutes to open the door with bars and drop bars and all these boats and all. So he was very uh, paranoid about somebody coming from. 
when he first done what he'd done, mm. he wasn't in any organization. He was no part of loyalism whatsoever. He had no interest in loyalism. He had no interest in any of the paramilitary gangs that were running this city for so long, causing so much damage. In my opinion, uh, and uh, I've discussed this with you and other people, he was a kid always crying out for attention. Now, he always had that psychopathic tendencies in him, even from childhood. You know, he'd have done things that children just didn't do that we wouldn't agree with, you know. You know, he'd have been cruel to animals. He, you know, he used to have this wee thing he used to do. He used to buy wee pet mice, put them in jam jars and sit with candles, fill the, the bottle full of wax and watch the wee mice go round and round the bottle, suffering till the bottle was full. And that takes some doing to sit with candles hanging over a milk bottle with a wee mouse alive till it's eventually smothered and dies. And he, that was his favourite childhood game, pastime. And there was another mm. time I bought wee rabbits in a place called Smithfield in Belfast. And on the way home on the bus, uh, one, of the friend, one of our friends, he was only about nine or ten, he vomited and we turned around and he took the, the head of the rabbit he pulled the head of the rabbit and was writing his name on different parts of the bus. So it was always that wee sickness in Mago. You know, now he was a very shy, quiet boy and he, he sang in the choir. You know, he got the name as Stoner the Loner. You know, there's not a lot of our boys bothered with him. He seemed to take to me and I was a Catholic. I was the opposite religion. Yeah, Jim, he came from the UK, actually. Interestingly, he wasn't born in Belfast or he wasn't. He moved over when he was about six or seven. Yeah, she wasn't knowing. I first came across him. He was coming up where I lived, the street where I lived, in a choir boy's uniform, the type of stuff that the choir boys wore with the wee frap thing and the frills, and that's how I got to know him. But uh, I knew from young years that he was a Catholic himself. No, uh, The majority of people didn't know it, but he shared that with me. His mother, his, uh, adopted, the mother that adopted him used to refer to him as the Fenian. You know, if I had a call at his door as a child, his mother would have referred, there's that Orphanian looking you, you know, and he got a lot of flack from this woman. The father was a nice man and the rest of the family were quite decent family, you know, but he was different. He knew he was different and the mother made made it known to him that he was different, you know. Were you kids afraid of him, Jim, when you were playing with him, playing football on the streets and that kind of thing? Were you, you know, obviously there was that horrible stuff he was doing with animals but was he likely to fight you or to you know get violent himself with no he was he wasn't one he was never violent with me he seemed to take to me for some reason i was the only one that he liked and trusted and a lot of us were the other boys were all protestants you know and we're all good friends and there was never any sectarianism among us or any fallout over religion and, and michael would have been the first to defend me if there was any sectarian remarks or religious marks, Michael would have stood. Actually, when we, where we lived was a uh, 99% Protestant estate, and in them days, Catholics didn't get them type of houses. But my parents were lucky enough to get a house, and it was called Token Tags. There was only a few Catholic families in the whole estate, and I would have been a Catholic that was well-known in the estate, and Michael hung out with me, and he'd have been loyal to me. And actually, when we were put out of the Brandle, when the Troubles first started in 69, we, I was in London living with Michael. We had moved to London to live, to get away from everything, and we were living over there. But when we came back, my family had been put out of the estate, and we had moved to an estate called Twinbrook Estate. And Michael ended up coming up there. 
he arrived up there looking for me. And at that time, he wanted to join the provisional IRA. And he went to people to join them, and they, they refused him entry to the provisional IRA. So I often wonder where was his head. He just wanted to be part of something. He just wanted, you know, and as I say, when I talked to him about the depression, when he was talking to me about it, you know, I didn't understand a lot about depression. I thought it strange him suffering depression. But it was only three days later I was watching TV and I seen him with the same coat, same hat, and the clothes he had on them was the clothes he was in the cemetery with. You know, and there was a lot of talk at the time that the SAS sent him in and different stories and uh, police were waiting on him in a white van and they took themselves off and left him to the woods, so to speak. But that was actually a friend of his from the estate who was something like himself, a bit of a psycho ex-British soldier. And that white fawn that they, they were the escape in, they'd been driving around where they lived for months and months in, in that van that bought it at an action. So it wasn't a planned thing with any paramilitary organisation. Mm. I've often said to people, that it's like that guy in Texas that's just went in and shot up the school or done playing. Michael was praying for that. If he was in America and he'd done the same thing, they wouldn't be queuing up for selfies and autographs. He was mentally unstable, Michael, from a very young age. You could see it in him. Like when we were kids, we went to the pictures one time. We all had to get out because he set the pictures in fair. <laughs> he let the, he just set fair to one of the chairs and the whole pictures, you know, and he was about 10. So he was always doing things that kids just didn't do. So you mean, Jim, he was in an environment in the north and when the troubles kicked off, he sought... Any side, he wasn't necessarily political. He first went to try and join the provost. Was there a reason they refused him? Did they see him as being the psychopath? Or yeah, well, I don't know. Just... I, would, I wouldn't give them any credit for not accepting psychopaths. I would just say to myself, uh, he just wanted to belong. He just See, he had tried various loyalist organisations, I'm told by loyalist leaders and all that are known Belfast, and, and nobody wanted him. So... He was really known as dark and strange. The state he lived, like mothers used to run out and bring their children in when he walked down. He was a frightening presence. He used to wear a big, long black leather coat on a summer day and have two big, serious pit bull dogs walking by his side on chains. So children were frightened him and parents would have called. He was known as odd and strange. And, uh, you know, he would never have been known. He had probably been in some mental if he hadn't done that Milton. If he hadn't done that Milton Samity and... He was a bit of a Walter Mitty. You know, if you told a story, he knew a better one. That type of character, you know, and he was always fantasizing. And, you know, he was never a loyalist. He was never a bigot. He was never sectarian. Well, his name's Michael Anthony O'Sullivan or O'Brien or something, you know. And, he, you know, I don't know. How, he, this hatred for women, I always noticed as a young boy, growing up with him, he never liked women. He seemed to have this hate. Whether his mother rejected him and left him in that home, and the mother that... They brought him to Belfast. She never accepted him in the house and was constantly calling them names. I remember one day showing me these photographs of Catholics being murdered in the shipyard. And there was one or two hanging from like lamps. And they were frightening for us for kids to look at it. I asked, where did he get them? And he said his mother has them in a suitcase under her bed. So whether he was trying to please that woman by doing something for loyalism or what or whatever, you know, it's hard to understand what was going through his mind to do what he'd done. I think he'd mm. been bragging and bumming. And, you know, if he had been organised, as I've said to people, it was stun grenades he was throwing 
in the cemetery. If it had been planned, there's a difference in a stun grenade and a real grenade. Like if you threw a stun grenade and it's to stun you, you know, the special forces use them all the time. If they had been real grenades, there would have been hundreds killed in that cemetery. But he'd done enough damage. But as I say, he told the police I was with him. And the police came out to interview me about it and asked, could I speak Irish? He told the police this silly story that I was with him and I could speak Irish. I can't speak Irish, you know, and I had an alibi for uh, where I was. Now, he's claimed the other murders, but the policeman that was came out to see me he said he didn't do them, but it clears the books. You know, and I watched this woman one night ask him why did she, he kill her husband. He said, I've seen his fail. He lives in this wee strange world by the way he's accessed the fails on people and different things. Mm-hmm. You know, the only attack Michael Stone done was at Milltown Cemetery. You know, and his friend, he took off in the van. There's a lot of stories in the north that that was SAS, that was mm-hmm. undercover, that was this, that. It was a, a friend of his, and he was arrested for it too. Why he wasn't charged, I don't know. And you feel he was, at that time, having met him in the days beforehand, then he told you he was depressed, that he was, you know, he was suffering severe mental illness when he did that. And was he trying to, do you think, always make his name? Did he always want to be famous? Maybe in the same way some of those mass shooters in the US leave their photographs, etc., online now because they want some fame. Yeah, that would be it, one, Nicola. That would be it, you know. Even people that has been to prison with him, he's telling them stories about burying people and he... The time that disappeared up here, where the IRA that disappeared, he has claimed a senior loyalist that he has people buried too. And I hope, you know, he always ha- he just wants to be famous. He wants attention all the time, you know. Mm-hmm. And no matter who it was, he he done it. He was involved, you know. But he was a very quiet, strange person growing up. You know, he never spoke much. And I've spoke to people who were in prison with him, you know, maybe for a year and I never heard him speak. You know, he's very quiet and, you know, and maybe most, uh, to me, he's a psychopath and he got mm-hmm. a raw deal. Maybe if he had been stayed in Birmingham and he hadn't got brought back to Belfast, it would have worked out different for him in life. Because there's a lot of goodness and kindness in him. You know, he wasn't your average chick. He never drank. He never smoked. You know, but that death thing with killing animals and mm. wee pets and the wickedness of vicious dogs and he, He'd have beat the dogs and all that. You know, he was a vicious person, you know, with animals, you know. And I think killing the animals was a build-up to killing humans. In my opinion, knowing them, you know, that's the ultimate to take human life. It started off with wee mice, wee rabbits, frogs, wee birds in the nest. We used to go hunting up, looking for wee birds' nests when we were kids and eggs and waiting on them hatching. And he'd have went up and killed the wee birds in the nest, you know. And what sort of kick did he get out of that, you know? And many's an argument us as kids would argue with him and fight with him over killing killing the wee birds, you know? And Jim, you obviously sort of lost contact with him a little bit after you came back to Belfast that time. You were in the UK with him as a, a sort of teenager or your early 20s. Yeah, when I, we were very young. We were young when we went till, uh, we were 14 years of age when we ended up in the streets of London. Oh. And then when we came back, uh, unknown to me, our family had been put out of the state. There was only a few a handful of Catholic families, but the troubles had really kicked off, so we were put out, and I ended up in a place called Twinbrook. And Michael ended up up there. When he discovered where I was, he came up there looking. For some reason, he trusted me, you know. 
And the other friends and the, the other chums and friends were hung about. If he'd have come out at night, they'd have went in. They didn't want to hang out with him. You know, and they were all, you know, because he was business and he was always playing with knives and hatchets and machetes and all that. And even as a married man, he was living up the fields in a hut. He made a hut and he, he's got wife and children in the house and he's living in a tree hut. And then he lived in a car for about a year in the estate, an old disused car. He lived in it. So all the signs was there that he was mentally unstable, mm. you know. He didn't... Very much so. Yeah, you know, he didn't go into that cemetery night. Lola's folklore up here would say, oh, what a hero and what courage and what bravery, but the guy was truly mentally ill. He was mentally ill before Milton. He was mentally ill before the Troubles. You know, the Troubles just gave him a, a, a pitch to play on. You know, here's my chance to be someday. I'll do something that nobody's done. You know, he was overweight. He couldn't run. You could see him in the cemetery. You know, he, he was out of breath. You know, and as has been said, he, only for the police arriving on the scene and rescuing him, he'd have been a dead man. He'd have been a dead man. And the gun that he used, they took off him and that went on to kill the two corporals. So in a sense, he was responsible for the death of them two corporals too because at the Republican funeral, the next funeral, they believed that to be an oil loyalist attack. And they killed the two soldiers with the gun that Michael Stone had. Now, he talks a lot about being in the army and being trained and this, that, and the other. I joined the army cadets with him. Like all of us did, we're just kids wanting to join the army cadets. We were about 13 or 14. I think we lasted two weeks. But he claims on programs he was sent away to Isle of Man to use live weapons. We never even seen a gun, a rifle, or nothing. You got a pair of boots and you had to shine them, and that was ahead of it. But he makes it out that he was trained by the British in firearms, you know, which is all all in his Walter Mitty mind, you know. A fantasist, but a dangerous one nonetheless. And Hugh, what is his kind of um, status now? Um, you know, is he somebody, like it's kind of peculiar reading that there's people wanting to get selfies with him, but I suppose he is a known face. Well, he has that status. You see, within the loyalist paramilitary world as it exists today, Nicola, he's obviously seen as a, a bit of a head case. But younger people are fascinated by him because they only say know nothing of the the the, the lies, the, the 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 exaggeration. They just see this man who attacked an IRA funeral single-handedly. That's all they see. So physically, as explained earlier, physically he lives a quiet life because he can't do anything else. Lives outside Belfast and he's never seen unless he turns up at events. He turned up at an anti-protocol rally uh, around a a few months ago and then this uh, event at Stormont, he couldn't stay away. And he enjoys that celebrity status. He's very quietly spoken. When he, when I left him, he put his hand out for me to shake hands, and then he, uh, he, he, he met. Uh, he, 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 he dealt with everyone else, mostly young people and women, strangely enough, who wanted their photograph taken with him. So it, when he goes out, he, he is subjected to small-time celebrity by a certain section of the population, but he is not a public figure in any shape or form. Even having a normal conversation with him is very, <laughs> is a very subdued affair. Mm. So was the, do you think that the 
that gaining of that celebrity after the Milltown Cemetery shootings was enough for him and that has satisfied him? Or do you see him as being still a danger today? Well, I have discussed him with the likes of Jim there who knew him better than anyone, I believe, and other people who knew him well, people like Johnny Adair who were in jail with him. And everyone has agreed you could never write Michael Stone off, Nicola. You could never say you'll never hear anything about Michael Stone. He's just going to grow old. He's not, I don't believe he is. There, there might still be another shake of the dice in Michael Stone. Yeah, he certainly sounds like that character. Jim, I hope you went on in life to avoid psychopaths after that sort of early foray with one. No, I'm not key. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dodging second pass, but it's very hard in Belfast, Nicola, to dodge them. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. full of them. <laughs> Michael Stone was not sectarian. He was not bigoted, but yet in loyalist circles, he's down. There's songs wrote about him, about that, what a loyalist hero. He'd no interest in any of that. He was, uh, so it was just, if he had been on the, if the provost had accepted him, he would have been attacking a loyalist funeral. You know, it's just, it gave him an excuse to do what was, unleash what was in his mind and what he really wanted to do, to take life. You know, and it started with a wee mice in the bottle and the rabbits and the birds and the, and the dogs and the cats. He was always with crossbows, big knives, machetes, always up around the fields wanting to kill something. And I never thought I'd see the day. Like, I think when he done that attack, he was 30 or he was late 30s. When he when he done that, and most young loyalists, the trouble started in '69, and most of them cut their teeth in the '70s, early '70s. He just seemed to pop up out of nowhere at, at late years, and all loyalist leaders and all had never heard of him. And at the start, uh, the police didn't even know, uh, couldn't recognize him. And when he was in the, in the prison, he didn't know where to join because nobody nobody owned him and nobody claimed him. It's just when they seen a wee bit of fame and notoriety for their own organisation, the UDA accepted him. But once they realised he was a bin lid, they dropped him too. So it's quite sad for him, you know what I mean? But it was, it's more tragic and more sad for, for his victims and their families. Celebrity is a really peculiar thing, isn't it? Oh, it's strange. Uh, Amber Heard, she'll be getting a lot of, she's fond mail coming at her, you know what I mean? For <laughs> Johnny Depp, you know. And as I say, it wouldn't matter who's sitting there in the wheelchair, people just like to say they've seen them, so they want photograph. I don't know so much that they're worshipping or hero worshipping. I think he's burnt out up here as a celebrity. They've done mm-hmm. a big mural in loyalist areas of them on the wall, but they weren't long painting over it. I think they stuck Jordy Best up instead. So he didn't last in the wall too long, you know. His mm. fame went very quickly, as quick as he came on the scene, he went off the scene, you know. But as, as Q says, he, he'd be capable of anything. He's not as mobile and fragile, but he could poison somebody. <laughs> <laughs> well, God knows. Um, well, Hugh and Jim, thank you very much for taking the time to tell us the story of Michael Stone, an absolutely fascinating characters and certainly one of the uh, the standout psychopaths of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.